This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan and today we're continuing a conversation with Emeritus Professor Robert Niemeyer, renowned expert researcher and therapist on coping with significant loss and change. So welcome back to part two of this conversation. Today, Bob is going to talk with us about why grief is so personal and share with us this varied range of strategies that people find helpful when they go to rebuild their lives after difficult losses. Bob, to start us off again today, I want to ask you, what influences how we grieve a loss? We grieve as a function of who we are, who we lose, and how we lose them. All three factors. And each can either reinforce our meaning and resilience or greatly challenge it. Talk to us a little bit about the risk factors, if you like, for um, complicated grief. 20 years of, of good research on this topic lets us know that social isolation is a risk factor. Um, poor communication and connection with, the, say, a hospital or a care facility uh, setting. Uh, such that feels uninformed or disempowered from playing meaningful roles with the loved one at the end of life. These are risk factors. Attachment insecurity, meaning that we aren't able to um, fully reaffirm our bonds of attachment and caregiving in relation to those we love, whether they're older than we are of same age or younger. Um, we are often called uh, toward the end of life into a caregiving role. And when we can't engage that, then we feel a basic kind of insecurity and sometimes a sense of abandonment, um, as well as guilt for, of course, abandoning them. Um, other factors um, could include uh, the, the character of the relationship. The more dependent we are on that person in some way, the more is at risk for us. Um, if we are spiritually inclined and for us, if the death then raises troubling spiritual questions, so we struggle with God's intention in our, the illness of our child, um, this kind of uh, thing, this is also a kind of evidence-based risk factor. What would be the protective factors that would support people in going through a grieving process that, that isn't going down the complicated path? Well, I, I think it... it it begins on the inside and it finds expression on the outside. Um, at every level of the system, we, we are ourselves systems of mm. meaning and personality and emotion and, you know, uh, actions and so on, right? Uh, so individuals are complex systems. And then we are nested in relationships. So we have our own, you know, our own biology, our own neurology. We are even at very basic neurological levels, we are pattern-seeking and meaning-making creatures. Mm. So we have this biogenetic um, propensity toward meaning. But that's held in a broader kind of relation frame that is dyadic between people and relational within small systems like families and communities. And then that is nested within a larger circle that is more kind of like a linguistic and uh, cultural frame. And those 
rituals that often are offered to us by our culture or cultures then can assist right with the um the scaffolding of our our grief it gives it a kind of shape and form um and so all of those can be protective factors right the support we receive at each level the support we give ourselves when we are able to sort of turn our attention inward and down into our grieving bodies with our maybe the knot in our stomach or the heaviness in our heart and we're able in a moment of generosity to ourselves just to say what's happening now in me what is this telling me about what i need right now and how can i have that need met maybe the need is to speak a pain that only a few people are willing to hear maybe it is a need to spend time in imaginal conversation with a loved one maybe it's a need to listen to soothing music or to write in our journal uh, maybe it's a need to participate in the tangi that our community is holding for uh, a loved one um so we relate the internal uh felt sense of our grief to needs that can find expression and we hold ourselves in compassion then we look for others who can hold us in compassion and who we can hold in turn um if they are close to us they are likely to be close to the person we also mm-hmm. are mourning and you know in the same family we may have the same loss but not the same grief so we recognize the different ways people grieve and we find ways of reaching out to them um in a way that they can uh, take in and that they need um and we invite what they can uniquely give us there is no one way to grieve and how you will grieve is how you are yeah. if this is your style if these are your strengths that is what you will draw on if you are the practical person you will go and build a dry stone wall as your monument to grief you'll yeah. do whatever it is that works yeah. for you um and so so really our role as supports to people in grief is to be the mirror that reminds them of their strengths in a way and that's help a, that's them that's beautifully said Denise I love that yeah. be the mirror that reminds them of their strengths right and maybe especially if the person they have lost has been that primary mirror mm-hmm. for a long time then um in a way they can become invisible to themselves and this gives a deeper meaning to reflective listening doesn't it yeah, yeah. because we are that reflection of who they are we reflect just not their their pain but also their potential one of the things i wanted to ask you was around so what are good questions to ask someone who's grieving that will help them with the sense making and the meaning making and i you know and i know you talk about the external and internal narratives and the reflexive piece and you have all of these different strategies if we're thinking about people who aren't in a therapeutic setting but do want to be those mirrors and that support what would be some of the things they could do Denise what could you tell me about your father he sounds like quite a character i i didn't have the chance to meet him but uh boy i'd sure love to hear some of the stories could you tell me a little bit of those that that might be a reasonable beginning right and if she yeah. denise smiles when i ask her yeah. this question then i know we're going to have a good conversation here um so that could be a starter um 
what were your dad's moments of greatness in life? Times that he was really proud of or that you were proud of. Maybe even they came long before you were on the scene. Mm -hmm. uh, you say he served in the Second World War. Was that an important part of his story? Right. Um, what did your dad teach you that is of enduring value to you? What would he say to you now if he could speak to you very directly in a father-daughter way about who you are that's precious? Right? And what advice would he give you about how to even get through this tough time following his physical absence from your life? Such lovely questions. Yeah, they're just, you know, they just come from a place of respect, mm -hmm. uh, a place of narrative inquiry, uh, a place of uh, relationality. So lovely to, you know, to see people's membership in the club of our lives not being canceled at the point of their deaths, but it, they kind of have a, a lifetime membership for our lifetime and beyond um, in that club. And so how do you kind of keep that going? How do you maintain you reinvent the relationship in a way that's sustainable now, even in absence. I love uh, that. Rather than relinquish it. Saying hello again in a different way. Yeah. Um, my personal, I lost a lot of friends when I was um, a teenager in early 20s. And the way that I envisage it is, you know, the, the Greek um, pantheon of the gods, and you've got like a ruined temple, but there's this... Yeah. Um, piece around and all of the statues still stand on top yeah, yeah, yeah. looking down yeah, on yeah. you they're all my people and they're still with uh, me looking down on uh, me and i can call on them for advice and support i love that i love that the, you have a personal pantheon yeah i think that's that that's really a, such a lovely image i might have to use that in therapy right who are the uh, let's let's cast an eye upward, right, to the the perimeter of this uh, partly ruined but still quite beautiful temple. And who's who are the pantheon uh, of, of characters who are looking down on you and and lifting you up? Bob, I know your work informs your view that each of us has to find our own unique and personal approach to grieving. Can you tell us more about this? We all need our own personal GPS, don't we? Mm. Our grief positioning system, maybe. I'm just making it up as I go along, but it sounds pretty good. Um, and uh, yeah, so that we, we're not all reading the same map at the same time. And it's a question of where we are. Um, the, the path unfolds. It reveals itself as we, as we move forward, mm -hmm. kind of like with a GPS, you know, as you move more of the road is revealed before you. And I think it's a, it's a bit like that. Um, it's not all mapped out. It's not all staged-like. There aren't a lot of uh, road signs that tell us which way we should go. It is like, uh, you know, I'm an old Boy Scout um, and an old Eagle Scout. That's the, mm -hmm. they call it the PhD of, of boyhood. Right? So uh, um, that's, that was my heritage. And um, so we did something called orienteering and we'd be taken out into the middle of a you know, a, a forest that we didn't know and uh, blindfolded. And then we were given a compass and uh, we'd be told, you know, how to get back to the lodge, you know, a few miles or kilometers away. And, you know, you had to orient by the 
the sun and the, seeing the sides of the trees on which the moss grew, or you'd use a compass and some of the things and make your way through this terrain. And I think grief, grieving is a bit like that. It is like orienteering, um, you know, more than uh, just following a prescribed map. Mm. Um, orienteering with no map. Yeah, yeah, but with a sense. Yeah, I mean, another reason I like the word sense in all of the Romance languages, right, the sens in French, mm-hmm. il senso in italiano, um, sentido uh, in, in Spanish, all of these have a, a double meaning, that sense means, um, you know, kind of significance of things, but also it, it means direction. You know, yeah. Senso unico, right, yeah, one way. Yeah. And so I, I like that because we do seek sense. We seek orientation in grief. Um, we seek, you know, we are wayfarers in a terrain made alien by loss. And we have to find a way through it. And when we meet with fellow travelers um, in the, the form of mutual support, uh, we are buoyed up and, and, and given assistance. Sometimes we meet with wise guides who know what to tell us. And so it need not be alone, but there are aspects of it that are only ours to, to work out. With a reduced focus on religious tradition in many developed countries, how do we create meaning and ritual in death, especially in cultures that don't encourage outward expressions of grief? You know, one huge trend in the last couple of decades that just keeps um, deepening is the idea of funerals being, you know, less legislated, um, more co-created with family. Uh, And so family members, you know, select the music, if any. Uh, they speak their own eulogies. It's not just the, the person with it wearing a clerical garb who's uh, doing that or the funeral celebrant. Uh, of course, we have videography and photographs and so on, uh, slideshows going in. So there are so many ways in which we can uh, participate in, in, in co-construct these. Um, so I, I'm actually fairly optimistic about all of that. Uh, I think we have many opportunities for um, finding expression of grief and uh, and playing a meaningful role in it. Your field is really interesting, and I'm I'm really curious about the fact that um, it's meaningful. It's hugely meaningful, but it's also sad and challenging sometimes. And you do you do both ends of this work. You do the, the, you know, the analysis of finding that meaning is a mediator and there's this chunky research, but there's also the sitting with people through their grief and being a therapist. How does that, how do you balance that? And how does that work for you? Well, I, I think it's, um, for me, it's a very natural thing. Although I, I confess that it's remarkably rare. Um, I know very few therapists who are significantly involved in research, and I know even fewer researchers who um, you ever want to walk into a a room and have do therapy (laughs) with you. Um, But I think there are two parts of the same thing, right? Uh, They come from a place of, um, of humble wonder 
at how human beings negotiate this complex business of living uh, and how usually we do a pretty good job of it, uh, sometimes under really daunting circumstances. And how can we not be deeply curious about that? How can we not be just very respectful of people who are willing to tell us their stories, whether they do it in questionnaires or interviews, or whether they do do it in therapy sessions um, or alongside us at the dinner table at night? Um, You know that it's about the... um, you know, the co-construction of meaning, witnessing of stories, being enriched by the stories of others, finding um, those relationships that are so precious that we will open the deepest uh, recesses of our hearts to them and, uh, and reciprocate. Um, therapy is merely, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one theater in which the, uh, the practice of dialogue is... Uh, is refined and, and offered as a healing modality, right? It's a dialogical space. Research also can be a respectful dialogical space. Um, and, and so too is living and loving. So I think it's all part of the same thing. I love that. I love humble wonder and curiosity. And there's also a huge respect for people and what they bring. Um, And as you were speaking, I was reminded of that lovely call to mindfulness by Ellen Langer of engaging with the situation and asking, what's new and different here? Yeah, I love that. I love that. It's very affirming and uh, it catches the growing edge of human experience. And I I think think in, in, yeah, I mean, in in grieving, when, when we meet people at a place of, of great sadness and tragedy. And uh, God knows we encounter that frequently enough in life. Then we, we need to be willing to offer the non-anxious presence to accompany them into the dark, darkest places. And when we do that, we earn more of the privilege to then accompany them into the light. Um, we don't push them toward what we see as the opening of the cave. You know, we're willing to sit with them by the small fire in the darkness. Um, And then we, our eyes adjust and we find a way forward together. Um, So, and I I do think that it's, um, it's an unhurried um, attunement to the, you know, the, the kind of questions um, that people can barely find words to ask themselves about their lives. Uh, we listen to hear those those strains and uh, and then we you know sit patiently with them as as they work toward the answers uh, but it is affirmative in just the way that the Langer quote suggests right we are listening for what is what is new what is possible um, and respecting the uniqueness of the person and their situation and not trying to impose, as you said, not imposing stages or frameworks or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And another quote actually has popped into my head and it's um, Farini and Amini from A General Theory of Love, these neuroscientists talking about why therapy works. And it's this beautiful quote that says, because 
therapy works because it takes the limbic brain of one mammal to rewire the limbic brain of another mammal. It's I love our, it. our sitting together and being with and feeling with and respecting. And as you say, sitting within the dark and not pushing, mm-hmm. but being there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I love that system, uh, that, that kind of intersubjective system that is kind of invoked by that, that idea. Um, I do think that the, the language of therapy um, is, the, is a limbic language, that it's, uh, it's precortical, it's, it's deeper than the cerebral cortex, um, and that, the, that therapy, all important therapeutic change arises at points of experiential intensity where real emotion is present, it's a limbic exchange, um, that's where change happens. And then all the rest in therapy or in life is just commentary. Mm-hmm. And commentary can, is useful. I mean, it can help us consolidate change, but it will never produce it. And so therapy is not an exchange of ideas. It is a mutual indwelling of experiences mm-hmm. that are emotionally vivid. We feel the underground river of emotion. We can feel it through our feet um, and we are moved by it. We are touched by it. We, we enter that river with the person, um, but with enough of an observational distance that we recognize it. it is their river of emotion and not our own. Mm. Um, but we are willing to inner tube with them down that river and, uh, and see where it takes us. Um, so, I think that the, the notion of it being, uh, you know, the limbic system of uh, one brain, you know, kind of putting the jumper cables on that of another and uh, engaging in the rewiring. I, I love that. Idea. And I love when you, your metaphor of the cave and sitting in the dark and, and when we talk about the limbic system, it does make me feel, you know, this is something very deeply human. And I like to think of our cave ancestors 65,000 mm-hmm. years ago. Somebody will have sat in the cave with their arm around another person, uh-huh. supporting them in their grief. Uh, you can be sure of it. Um, I mean, you, you need only look at the origin of so many burial practices and uh, cave drawings and so on to know that we have been um, companioning one another. We've been trying to make meaning of death. Uh, we've been offering consolation of a ritual kind and a very personal human kind much longer than we've been recording history. Um, Robert McFarlane in his book Underland writes about, you know, the ways we've used um, under the ground for burial, for hiding bad things, for hiding precious things. And there's a burial site, I cannot remember where in the world, but it is thousands and thousands of years old. And it's a mother with her newborn baby. And they have put, the baby has been placed on two swan's wings. Wow, wow. You know. Absolutely. I mean, it, literally uh, almost configuring it as an angel, right? And, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, and something precious and soft that it lay yeah. on when it went into the cold ground. You know, yeah. what comfort we want to offer and extend mm-hmm. to the people we love. 
beautiful. It's it's and it makes me it reminds me that it is such a part of being a human being. Mm-hmm. It is indeed. So, is indeed. Bob, you know the work that you do, meaningful, challenging. Um, what's your what's your approach or your strategy? How do you look after your own well being? What are the things that work for you? Well, you know. I think that there are things that are um, that we often think of, uh, you know, self-care strategies, this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I just came back from running, uh, you know, five miles or so. I take long walks and runs every day and I cook good meals for myself. Uh, all of that. I maintain a warmth of relationships, even at distance. Um, so all of those are self-care. I enjoy pleasure reading in the evenings. I write poetry. I construct collages of my emotional arcs through different experiences. So all of that is important. Um, it's, you know, what works for Bob. Um, but I think that much more basic than that is that uh, self-care is a matter of it's a matter of mindfulness. It's a matter of presence. Um, when I'm working with people who experience oftentimes very devastating losses, a child is dying of cancer, a, a client is uh, dying of a complicating MS kind of condition, is very debilitated, has to be helped into a chair and helped back into his car. And, um, you know, or a young woman comes whose husband uh, suicided six weeks ago or a two parents come whose, whose kid uh, just overdosed. I mean, this is a heavy day at the practice. Um, and so it's not just a question of what I do for myself after I get home. It's a question of what am I doing for myself and them in every session? And what I find, Denise, is that if I can give full presence to this person who is with me now, from a standpoint of quiet attunement, if I can allow all of my own conceptualization of the case, my own intentions and what happened with the last client and what will with the next, all of that just to drift away and down and to dissipate and to call up a, a full sense of presence to this person where I hear the intonation in their voice and I, I watch the communication in their body and um, you know, I listen for the relevant uh, emotion and the, the key themes um, and participate in them and allow myself to be touched by them. And I feel some version of what they feel inside me. Then that to me is the optimal resonance of therapy. Bob, I am so grateful to you for being with us today and for sharing your work and your presence with us. And it's lovely. I feel that your, your, um, your work informs and advises us, whether as um, people wanting to do therapeutic work or just wanting to be a helpful presence and handholder to somebody we love who is going through grief. So from everyone who's going to listen to this podcast, I want to say thank you so much for your time today. Denise, it's been a perfect pleasure. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. You can listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz or on nziwr.co.nz 
or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. To purchase books or online programs on coping with loss and resilient grieving, go to nziwr.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.